This is a Federal News Network podcast. Now that it's been on the street for more than a week, the Biden administration's proposed budget for fiscal 22 is about to have its hearings in Congress. For this and what else is ahead, we turn to WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And I guess it's fairly easy, Mitchell, to predict how the various sides will react to this really blowout budget, at least on the civilian side. But what can we expect in this coming week? Right. Certainly a lot to pour over in that $6 trillion budget. It really is a blowout budget. Absolutely massive, even by federal budget standards. Would increase spending in a wide range of areas, including public health, education, housing, the environment. As you alluded to, Democrats are pretty much on board with all of the proposals that the White House is putting out. Uh, We really know where Republicans stand. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy calling it the most reckless and irresponsible budget proposal in his lifetime. So we're going to get ready for those partisan battles. The House Budget Committee will start all of this off this week, taking a look at all of these proposals, obviously sprawling amounts of money going out. One of them, of course, included related to federal workers is that proposed 2.7 percent pay raise up from the 1 percent pay increase that federal employees received for this year. Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly is again proposing a higher pay raise under the FAIR Act, as he has in the past. We'll see what happens with that, although it usually goes to the wayside. The increase in 2020 was bumped, as federal workers remember, to 3.1%. So we're basically in that general area. And then there's a lot of talk about what's going to happen at these federal agencies in terms of hiring. And there's a lot of discussion in this budget about really expanding the hiring in many of the agencies, including HUD would get close to 10% increase in hiring, uh, more than 7% at EPA. State Department, interestingly, which was retrenched under the former Trump administration, would also get a big increase, probably close to what it would be in the past decade. And then at the IRS, which there's been a lot of discussion, as you know, in connection with trying to recoup more money as we talk about infrastructure, they are considering with Treasury being able to hire up to 8,500 more workers. The head of the IRS says if they were able to hire a lot more workers and to improve IT and improve a lot of different areas, that they would actually be able to bring in hundreds of billions of dollars in additional money that is going to desperately be needed if anything close to this budget is able to get through Congress. Now, this has to be vetted not just with the appropriations committees, but all of the different oversight committees that have some say in the budgets of their various respective agencies. So this is not something they can do in a week or even a month, probably, it would seem. Right. Everything is really going to start rolling into action uh, starting this week with the Senate coming back. Uh, House is having some hearings. They will formally be back for votes the following week. But we're really starting into that process. And some lawmakers feel like things have not moved as quickly as they need to be at this point, that they really need to get rolling. One of them, of course, is the infrastructure issue. The House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee plans to begin marking up its legislation on Wednesday. Late last week on Friday, they unveiled a $547 billion proposal. And that is actually just as one microcosm of the issues that they're going to have to deal with. That one differs greatly from the more than $300 billion measure that was passed out of committee from the Senate and 
Environment and Public Works Committee. So there's just one example of the reconciliation that will have to take place between both chambers as Democrats, again, pushing to go big, as they keep saying, with a lot of spending and a lot of Democrats on the more centrist and moderate side saying, wait a second, I don't know if we can afford all of this. And of course, Republicans really pushing back on a lot of these costs. And getting back to that infrastructure negotiation, what is the significance of the president negotiating with Senator Capito, West Virginia? Why that senator? Well, so West Virginia Senator Shelley Moore Capito has been somebody who Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has basically entrusted to go ahead with the lead on these negotiations. And she is seen as basically an honest broker here on the Hill, that she's relatively low key. She is someone who works well with both sides of the aisle. McConnell has really not wanted to get involved in a lot of the uh, deeper things in the weeds on this. So he has said, I'm going to have you be the lead on this. And then she's a member of a larger group of bipartisan lawmakers of about 20 from the Democratic and Republican side, where Democrats you know, say basically that they can trust her. But obviously, a huge amount of give and take has been going on in connection with infrastructure. And there again, when you talked about that timeline, while the administration has tried to downplay various deadlines and specific hard dates, lawmakers really on both sides are saying that this train has to start getting out of the station now. And it's really going to be something that has to get done in the next couple of weeks because Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said he wants to act on the infrastructure measure one way or another, whether it's with Republicans or not, by July. So obviously some things have to happen here in the coming weeks with infrastructure. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP, and getting back down into the weeds for a moment on telework for federal employees. This is also something Congress is starting to say, golly, if we pick up the phone, will anyone be there in the agencies? Right. There's a lot of concern about what's going to happen with telework now that we're sort of coming out of the end of the pandemic here. We're still obviously in the midst of it. A lot of agencies still struggling with how they're going to proceed, basically. Are they going to continue to try to expand as many in uh, Congress would like them to do? And then there's some concerns related to security. Uh, The House Oversight Committee has asked that inspectors general from 10 different agencies take a much more closer look at telework and whether or not there are cybersecurity issues that have been raised or have come up during the pandemic. A lot of these agencies, as you would expect, would be State and Defense Department, Homeland Security, but also Justice Department, Energy, Treasury, Health and Human Services, the VA, Education. So lawmakers want to know, have there been additional problems, as we've known just in the last few weeks in connection with the meatpacking industry and with the gas line uh, infrastructure issues with cyber attacks and, and hacking and ransomware? This is really top of mind for a lot of lawmakers right now. A lot of concern related to that and infrastructure issues. I was going to say, yes, the ransomware, of course, is heating up. It's almost eclipsed talk about what happened on January 6th at the Capitol. And do you see any legislation forming? Uh, There's a lot of talk about ransomware and the effects on the economy, but how do you legislate against Russia? It's already against the law to do what they're doing. Right. And that, that is going to be a real struggle. And I think a lot of lawmakers are trying to figure out exactly what the federal response can be. I mean, late last week, the FBI director indicated that it is on par with terrorism. This is something that's going to probably be picked up, I would say, in the Homeland Security committees on the House and Senate side. A lot of Republicans have indicated that they would like to delve into this deeper. But it is such a broad and 
and varied issue that it's going to be really difficult to actually isolate on this. And then as uh, tech experts have pointed out, some of these ransomware operations, they're almost like companies. They actually market themselves in this netherworld of going after infrastructure in various different countries. So it's going to be really interesting how that develops over the next few months. Almost a tech age version of Murder Incorporated. It's right. Like. Exactly. And I have to ask you about the Capitol fence, because that, again, is a lingering issue related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. What's going on there? Well, it's really interesting because this is the one area, one of the few areas, I should say, where Democrats and Republicans really do see eye to eye on this issue. Virtually all lawmakers want that fence to come down, but it's really a matter of timing. And I talked about this with D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton. She's been one of the most vocal critics, basically says that this takes away what she effectively views as a park, the Capitol complex uh, right around the most immediate area. Of course, the earlier wide perimeter fence was taken down back in March, but this fence still is all around that complex. Eleanor Holmes Norton is pretty optimistic. She thinks that it could come down actually sometime later this summer, but it's really going to be up to the Capitol Police Board, which, as you know, while a relatively obscure small panel has come under a lot of scrutiny in the wake of January 6th because they were responsible largely for what was done or not done in connection with security related to what happened during the insurrection, but they actually have the final call on whether or not the fence will come down. Of course, we have National Guard has all left from here. So the fence is really literally and symbolically kind of the last vestige of what you can see in connection with what happened on January 6th. Also, I should note that Eleanor Holmes Norton, she had a public roundtable in which she had various experts come in, and, and one of them was a retired Army general who took part in the overall review of everything. And he said there still needs to be some hardening of the windows, the doors that were damaged during January 6th before this fence could come down. But I think you're going to see increasing pressure for this fence to come down in the coming months. And then meanwhile, they still have to figure out with the Senate coming back this week what they're going to do with a nearly $2 billion security measure, which has already passed the House for a wide range of things, including a retractable fence that would go around the complex. We'll see what happens with that. Some Republicans have indicated some skepticism about the costs and indicated they wanted to review it some more. But again, capital security is going to be definitely getting a lot of attention in the coming weeks and months. Well, maybe doors and windows can come in under the infrastructure bill. That's right. (laughs) Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. 
Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy, 
And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants, and I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the. Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. 
I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.